We pretty much use just about every single product that uh, Iron Source offers. We're, we're completely integrated with the platform. Of course, the mediation products, all ad, ad products, and the company that can assist us in doing UA and monetization and all the uh, additional products that come along with it. It takes a lot of uh, headache away from us. It takes a lot of the hard, busy work off of our hands, having a kind of an all-in-one platform. You just heard Andrew Stone. He's the CEO at Random Logic Games, who use IronSource's platform to grow their games in the smartest way possible. If you want to grow like Random Logic, you can get the SDK on IronSource's website. That's ironsrc.com. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, Marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppSlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppSlyer's latest product, the Incrementality Solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppSlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest you head out to appsflyers.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Twig number 119. You have myself, Joe Kim, a.k.a. Deep Gaming Value, calling those stocks. We have Eric Kress, Adam Telfer, and Mishka Katkoff. And today we are going to be talking about four different articles. First, why did AppLovin buy Adjust by Mobile Dev Memo? Second, EA buys Glue which has been basically covered by every single publication, gaming publication out there. Third, Embracer Group acquires Borderlands maker Gearbox Entertainment for $1.3 billion from VentureBeat. And finally, our own Deconstructor of Fun podcast has released predictions, shooters, and marketing. How are you guys doing? All good, man. There's so much news going out there. It's, it's almost like yeah, overwhelming it's crazy weeks. Um, Yes, it's a very crazy week. It seems like every week is crazier than the next, it seems. Yeah, we thought 2020 was a crazy year, but actually 2021 is another popcorn year, guys. It's it's nuts. Dude, what's left? What's left out there, dude? It's bottom of the Nothing. barrel type time right now. Nothing. <laughs> Just a moment ago, uh, Cyberpunk developers CD Projekt got cyberpunked, right? They got like cyber attacked or something like that. <laughs> oh, really? Did you see that? Yeah, I actually stock, tweeted about that and somebody said it. it's not funny. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, well. In any other things going on or should we just jump right into uh, updates with Adam? I don't know. Well, I'm I have so, a quick update. I'm, I'm, oh, good. Yeah. Uh, we have some feedback, not a lot of feedback, but I listened to the podcast last week, and I have to admit, my uh, the level of cursing was just out of control. I think I, <laughs> I dropped so many F-bombs, and I have an excuse, of course, because I always have excuses, is that I was in excruciating pain sitting here with my knee was just completely jacked, and so I was feeling a little bit of, uh, of a, pew, a lot of pain the whole time. So maybe that got me a little frothy, but I will uh, I will keep the cursing to a minimum 
even though I don't, pro- I promise that I, w- I can't promise that I won't curse, but I certainly won't curse as much as I did last week. So I apologize for those that were offended. I was offended about myself, frankly. That's it. I take that apology. Accept it. Let's go into the updates. Um, so first one, Leaf Mobile um, has acquired uh, Eastside Games for nearly $160 million. Um, so Eastside Games, a great studio. Actually, like an amazing story of their focus on Idol, um, especially the, the Trailer Park Boys game. Um, and I think overall, really great for the Vancouver scene. So uh, Leaf Mobile um, is also another mobile game studio. Um, they also, what they call, create counterculture idols games, which is basically a whole bunch of drug-inspired idol games. Um, so what is it, like Cheech and Chong's idol games, these types of things. Um, I don't really see a lot of success from them from Sensor Tower. Um, but overall, it looks like Leaf is you know, doing some sort of a merger almost with Eastside Games because Eastside Games just seems like a, a lot better of a business right now. So the, the overall deal looks like about $19 million actually in cash, and the rest of it is in Leaf shares and, of course, contingent on performance. Um, but then Jason Bailey, who was the chief product officer of Eastside, has now been appointed as the chief revenue officer of Leaf and is now director to Leaf's board of uh, to least board overall. So it looks like it's less of an acquisition, but actually more of, say, a merger to buy expertise and offer Leafs scale to Eastside Games. Um, because I think Eastside Games is, you know, clearly operating some very successful idle games um, with a very similar target demo. Yeah, I Not think Eric. I was reading a little bit of Slack chatter around that. It seemed like it's almost like a mini SPAC in Canada where that was like created just to acquire Eastside. But uh, in terms of their games, as far as I know, I thought Trailer Park Boys was doing pretty well. And for those who are interested, I know Eastside hosts like a Zoom, like a monthly Zoom hangout. So if anyone's interested in that, I think you you can you can ask me to get the contact info of the person who runs that. And Adam, you, sh- you should join that. It's it's all Canadians. Yeah, yeah. The problem is, is that it's West Coast. I'm East Coast. So the, the time ends up being right in the middle of baby hour. So it's not great. All of Canada is the same. What are you talking about? It's like the Great White North, yeah, yeah. right? San Francisco, right. New York. Same thing. Same thing. No, 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 no. no. We're, we're talking about Canada, right? There is a distinction between San Francisco and New York. But for Canada, it's just Canada, right? Yeah, Here. yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. For me, uh, GameStop, thank God GameStop is coming back down to earth. So... All is right in the world when this stock is back to five to ten dollars, but it is uh, getting absolutely decimated down back below fifty now. Uh, right, coming back down to where it belongs because this thing was ridiculous from the get go. So, feeling good about that. Um, uh, how about you, JK? What do you got? Uh, so first, I think one is a rumor going around about Epic Games going public. And this was based on a tweet from a former Jeffries employee. Jeffries is an investment bank. And this guy has taken an investor relations position at Epic. So word on the street is that this definitely means, according to some folks, that Epic is planning on going public. And so we'll have to, uh, according to our, our buddy, Matthew Contraman, if this is the case, then most likely they'll have to wait until all the lawsuits are cleared up before they do so. But I think we should expect for Epic to try and go public maybe at the end of the year or again after the lawsuits are cl- cleared up. Second update from me, and this was sent in via an anonymous tip. And I don't want to, and just to be clear, I, I don't want to like throw 
like unnecessary shade on Unity. And by the way, my studio uses Unity and we love Unity. But just to get this discussion out there. <laughs> so some I can uh, do this update then. <laughs> we use some posts from former Tapjoy CEO Mihir Shah. And now he's a CEO of a company called Modimatic. And he's been really calling out Unity for, you know, basically shading accounting, according to him, in a number of LinkedIn posts. And by the way, these are just allegations, right? These are just some things that he's saying. But over the past month, he has been posting about Unity not being forthcoming about how it reports its ad revenue, where, according to him, they're not publishing their publisher payouts, nor are they breaking out ad revenue more specifically. And instead... You know, bundling the revenue as I, I forget what they call it, like create revenue or something like that. But I, I think the point he's making is that by by showing net rather than gross revenue, not showing that publisher split out, they're able to show higher margins than which is a little bit misleading. And he would he would basically like to see the specific ad revenue broken out from the from the we, bundle. We were ta- we were talking about this months ago. What are you talking about? <laughs> this is no like big thing. Yeah, they they but, but bury you, their advertising and services to make yeah. themselves look like they're we, growing. We, we did mention that. All they, yeah. Go ahead. So, and all they're doing is growing ad revenue, right? It's a it's a total yeah, but almost Ponzi scheme. <laughs> okay, well, because that's not I, real again, growth I'm, for I'm an enterprise software but, company. But, but, but uh, the posts are like pretty crazy, like criticizing John Riccatel specifically. And, you know, he basically says they will never be profitable and things like that. So so the the, <laughs> the posts are a little bit over the top. E- even for us, they're over the top. So No, but anyway. John Riccatel is a freaking genius, dude. Don't get me wrong. The guy is a, ice to Eskimos, man. And so I think he, he sold a bill of goods and he's going to have to live up to that. And we'll see what happens when IDFA crushes them and then... When they can't grow their revenue top line anymore because no one wants to use Unity. <laughs> anyway, this, this stock Eskimos. is on a, on a tear. <laughs> hey, 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 stock, I've on. never heard of ice to Eskimos. Right. But yeah, Let, okay. Let's let's move on. Let's move on to uh, to happier topics. So Chris Petrovic, who was on this podcast, um, great interview by Cress and Kim, former head of Zynga's Corp Dev, joins Fun Plus in their new Switzerland HQ. So this kind of leads to probably Fun Plus doing a lot of acquisitions, probably in EU and Middle East in 2021. So. That would be very interesting. It was a nice yeah. blog post because Chris just posted a long blog post when he left Zynga, like, you know, a lot of work, yada, yada, yada. I've been a lot of traveling, so we're going to move to Oregon. Like, wait, another blog post. I think I'm going to Switzerland. It's pretty nice out here. <laughs> like, but um, but I think great move from from Fun Plus. And uh, as we've covered in the predictions, Fun Plus is, I think it's already bigger than Supercell in terms of revenue. So it's a big company and really massive growth in 20. 20 and looking to grow this year. So probably very interesting acquisitions that they're going to make. Yeah. And I, I have to say it all started with this game called King of Avalon that was led by this really genius dude. All right. Uh, on to the next move. <laughs> so. But by the way, so, word on the street oh, is that they're not done. There's actually some other big, big names that are going to be rolling over to Fun Plus, but that that's the word on the street. Anyway, moving on. Yeah. Yeah. Fun Plus is fantastic. Uh, I know, I know that the guys listen to this podcast. So, um, yeah, great, great, great hire from them. So the second update that oh, I have wait, is wait, wait, uh, hold on before, dude. We can't objectively though. They're they they are living in the world of of, of user acquisition arbit- arbitrage, right? And so like they're like staring down the barrel of a gun right now with their games and any type of probably the games that are in development. So they have to expand outside of core four uh, X. And so this makes total yeah. sense to hire someone like Chris to you know. 
fucking boil the ocean and oh, I used the curse word, boil the ocean to like find find new opportunities for them to grow, right? Because I think I think their current portfolio is going to have some challenges going forward. So exactly, hundred percent right. So their current mobile portfolio is very much heavily on forex, especially state of survival being their biggest game that grew in twenty twenty. Uh, the good part about those games, the DU is is relatively small and even after you cut off the user acquisition the revenues are quite stable we've seen this with machine zones legacy portfolio that is making a ton of money still so what that means is they have a lot of time to do those acquisitions several years even if you cut all the user acquisition so it's not as fast with idfa with the forex and the second part is fun plus already started with the um like even before the forex games they were browser heavy so they it's, it's just a matter of time before we'll see PC SKUs out of those 4X titles, which we're already seeing with all the RPGs title, titles moving into uh, to PC, like Plarium, and I think even Scopely might have some some uh, some PC SKUs for their, for their mobile titles. Anyway, let's talk about um, another update. So Supercell is looking for a game lead for Clash Royale. So this is very unusual because leads typically come from inside in the company through almost like a... Like, like if you will a field promotion and in a way you can take this as a signal of change it's almost like a new ceo coming out from outside because this type of role is is even shown as this is a mini ceo that's how they see the game leads so but let's take a step back and look at the uh, look at the game clash royale so the situation as we've reported is quite dire for clash royale the revenues have halved and are pretty much the same as heyday is today so uh, and even on some of the weeks when I was looking in Sensor Tower week over week revenue, on some weeks, Heyday actually ha- had higher revenues than Clash Royale, which is pretty crazy. Um, I think, you know, talking about difficult job, this is it. Like you have to turn around a declining game. You have a lead a team of absolute monsters, you know, really, really great developers of which half of them have probably been working on this game since it launched, so they know it extremely well. And most importantly, you have to take this leadership probably over the Zoom because you can't really meet with anybody on site. Um, and and I, don't, I don't know. There's it, there, there are always goals to victory, and I was kind of trying to, to think what would make sense for a game like Clash Royale. And if I would you know, mark three, three opinions of what could could turn this game around one is definitely bringing marketing to helsinki for this game because downloads have been declining and if they would have a marketing person on hand in the team i don't know if they do but i assume that they don't like in a typical supercell matter if they would have a, a marketing person inside the team that would help them to to start stop the decline of downloads the second part is is of course boosting the live ops we've been talking about this a lot but they need more content for their battle pass and they need more game modes and those two together you need to have a bigger team either internally or an outsourced team that can help them to churn out way more content and through that improve monetization and as well as retention and third thing is probably looking at geographical excellence with perhaps dedicated servers and even local growth teams we've seen this working for for company uh, for companies like gorina uh I think Netmarble is the one that that uh, publishes Lineage. So these companies have have found a lot of success in brick countries uh, by having these smaller kind of like a small product team, growth team that helps to to really monetize and 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 work well in a certain region. I think game with such a live such a giant audience like Clash Royale could also benefit by having a little bit different pricing and different approach of monetization in um, in other than than the um, sort of like uh, Western countries. So those are kind of like my three points. I don't know. What do you guys think? 
Yeah, I don't think they're going to be starving for applicants here. Like, I think yeah. th this is actually like a perfect job for somebody who's been head of live, um, big product mind from an existing kind of successful uh, CCRPG game, right? Um, you have a lot of fertile ground in terms of Clash Royale and bringing in some expertise outside from Supercell, I think makes a lot of sense. Like it's humble, but, you know, Supercell does have things to learn. And I think getting somebody who's, you know, driven live on some of these CCRPG games could actually, you know, uh, change the fortunes here. Yeah. Um, and overall, Supercell has a great team willing to make bold moves, right? To change the economy, to speed up live ops, invest in in-game events, right? So, uh, you know, all, all the power to them. It's not going to yeah, be I, me, though. I'm not, I'm not smart enough to do this. It's not even four of us That's combined. A, <laughs> I, I just want to make sure that was not self-serving for me. That was like yeah. <laughs> someone That's, who has done CCRPG games. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, uh, yeah. That's putting your feet to the fire right there, man. Such a big deal game and so high profile. That, yeah. That's scary. So all the power to them. I think this is a great move that they're taking somebody from outside. And I think really shows that they're looking to, to change. Uh, but, um, but yeah, awesome. It's my favorite game. So, so hopefully somebody who takes it over can, can put it back on the, uh, on the growth track. So do we want to talk about why did app love and buy adjust? Hey, folks, we're going to cut out for a quick commercial break from one of our sponsors, Square Enix Montreal. So check it out and stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. If you've played Lara Croft Go, Hitman Sniper, or Hitman Go, then you know Square Enix Montreal. Guess what, guys? The studio is looking for top talent to create the mobile games of tomorrow today. Square Enix Montreal pushes the boundaries of AAA gameplay and stunning design for mobile screens. And the team there is working on three new games, including a game with augmented reality features and a game based on an entirely brand new IP. The Montreal-based studio has over 25 open positions, including executive producer, data analyst, and art director. So if you are looking for a new opportunity, you're going to want to visit semmtl.com slash DOF to find out more. Link in the show notes. Check it out. All right, guys, starting the news, why did AppLovin buy Adjust? So in really big news this week, AppLovin announced that acquired Adjust, which has a number of potentially pretty big industry implications. And for those in the audience who aren't aware, an MMP, which Adjust is, or Mobile Measurement Partner, they basically enable game studios to tell where a mobile game install comes from. So say you're running a bunch of ad campaigns, an MMP will assign a source to to installs that come into the game. So AppLovin, as most of the industry is already aware, is both a very major ad network and a collection of content game studios, including its hyper-casual company Lion Studios and even including MZ, the hardcore 4X game studio. So in this article from Eric Sufert from Mobile Dev Memo, uh, Eric suggests that one, first, that the 1 billion acquisition price floating around is likely too high and could be quote, substantially less. And this is despite the $227 million raise in June of 2019 and a total of $250 million in investment to date. So in the post, uh, Eric Sufert suggests three theories why AppLovin acquired Adjust. So first, Eric notes that Adjust likely has about $150 million of ARR or annual recurring revenue. Hence, his first theory is basically just multiples arbitrage. So in short, financial engineering, meaning that you know, taking the just revenue, but then applying AppLovin's likely higher multiple against the revenue. 
His second theory is more around building an internal cross-promo infrastructure. So he's suggesting that if AppLovin can probabilistically attribute installs across their own games network, so basically he's suggesting you can do better cross-promo in-network without having to do everything under, let's say, a single App Store account via IDFV because you're basically doing that probabilistic attribution across games and data that you have in your own in your in, in your own data. And so Eric then clarifies that fingerprinting for using probabilistic matching, if done entirely within your first party data, will likely be compliant with Apple's policy and further probably not even detectable by Apple in either case. So and, and finally, Eric's third theory is that MMPs even post IDFA will remain valuable as iOS attribution moves to uh, what's basically known as a conversion value game, meaning that in the new post-IDF world for, for, with Apple, Adjust will still get info about conversion behavior from Adjust customers. So basically what this means is that you can get some data about conversion associated and, and attribution associated with users. It's, it's basically what's called SK Ad Network has this has this uh, postback parameter called conversion update value where you can assign like a six bit value to a user, but it's it's only very early data, like within the first 24 hours. So my take on this is that App Levin has not had the best history or reputation in terms of customer data. And I'll, I'll let, I won't dive too much more deeply into that, but I would say that there are a lot of people nervous about AppLovin's access to all of the adjust data. And I think the full implications of this combination will probably have to basically talk about in a separate podcast. There's a lot to it. But my own take as far as Eric's theories is that there's a lot of truth to his theories, but I'd probably differ a little bit in a few areas though first. I do think it, it it is a major pain in the ass to switch attribution providers, but I do think AppLovin will lose some future attribution business, all else being equal, just because there is that risk. And I do think even some current customers, not, I mean, I don't know how much, maybe not a huge number, but certainly some of their existing companies will likely jump because they will be afraid that AppLovin will use their data to compete against them. Oddly, some companies that they have already competed against, like Playrix, the, the word on the street is that in some cases, they don't even care anymore because once they have your data, it's like, you know, at that point, they've, they've, they already have it. So I, so the rumor is that Playrix would, would you know, wants to actually get AppLove and in, add inventory, but they just can't. Uh, but also the other thing to watch out for is the potential new capabilities that will be enabled if this combination comes to pass. So there's some thoughts about auto ROAS and other capabilities that will come online if this combination happens. And we'll talk about that in the second podcast. Uh, secondly, I think that I'm not a huge believer in the cross promo advantage. I'm not saying that Eric Sufert isn't right about the motivation, but I'm just skeptical, skeptical about how effective it'll be. And then I think finally, um, my perspective on the conversion value management, I agree that uh, that's that's likely to be valuable, but I think there's going to be a gap between the kinds of games that are able to take advantage of this data. So I think the the games that are more casual, where early data actually has a more meaningful and significant impact, 
those are the kinds of genres of games that this data will be useful for. But deeper games, more mid-core, hardcore games, where you actually need a longer set of data and data over time, that those games, I, I think they're going to continue to struggle in games like 4X and other more hardcore games where the data that they're going to get does not provide them a meaningful advantage against those genres. What do you guys think? I fell asleep. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand this stuff and I, I don't really want to understand this. So I'll take Eric Seifert's viewpoint and, and move on. I think these guys are fucking brilliant operators and let them, let them do what they do and hopefully they can manage it and work it through. It's <laughs> just kidding. Not that you're not that your description wasn't mesmerizing, but I just, every time I start hearing all this, like rigmarole and, <laughs> poppycock and all this other stuff i just, I just fall asleep so <laughs> let's move on let's talk about something we know okay <laughs> be sure because honestly i think that uh that story got the most chatter on the deconstructor fun slack I know, chat for I know. a long time right yeah yeah nobody Especially... nobody cares about ea acquiring glue but man you know vertical integration in this industry okay yeah anyways, ea buying glue um, so Glue Mobile has been acquired by EA and it's targeting the end of Q2, so June 31st. Um, Glue was valued at 2.1 billion. Uh, so that's roughly 12.50 a share, which is a 36% premium from last Friday's closing. Um, so note that it's technically 2.4 billion if you include the cash in hand at Glue. Um, so looking at Glue, uh, 1.32 billion in bookings in the last 12 months. Um, and on a percentage-wise breakdown, we're looking at Design Home on top, 36%, MLB Tap, roughly 16%, Covet Fashion, 14%, Kim Kardashian, 11 Disney Sorcerers, roughly about 10%, and then Diner Dash combined around 8%. Um, so really, at first blush at this deal, right, this is really like a pretty good match for EA. So like in terms of IP fits, right? Like you've got Sims on the EA side struggling to capture the lifestyle business versus Design Home, Cuff of Fashion, Kim Kardashian. All these games and all these developers have built up expertise that will work very well for Sims. Then you've got FIFA and Madden, of course, struggling to grow versus MLB Tab Sports, right? Overall, EA Mobile Publishing has been overall very stagnant. We've covered this a lot. And ideally, Glue, user acquisition, and growth talent can actually reinvigorate their overall mobile business, right? Um, so Jeff Karp, who's now the head of mobile for EA, right? This is also a good match with Nick Earl, who's the current CEO of Glue, who actually was the ex-head of EA's mobile division. These guys worked together in the past. Um, so obviously, it's, it's uh, as we called it on the Slack channel, bringing the band back together again a bit. Um, so from... Andrew Wilson, the quote is, we did this deal because we believe mobile is the fastest growing platform on the planet. When I read this bullshit, okay, excuse my language, <laughs> Andrew Wilson, who has ignored mobile for six freaking years, and now he's out there perpetrating this nonsense. Are you kidding me? Shut up, Andrew. Let Jeff Harp talk or Laura no, Miele. No, You've done Andrew nothing in this. mobile. Nothing Andrew, in mobile, Andrew. Go ahead. <laughs> Andrew did this specifically to target Eric. Just this <laughs> trigger. Trying to incite <laughs> violence with this stuff. Enough of this. <laughs> Let's see if we can get the, the square total over last week. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so specifically, this creates a market leader in life or 
Glue is a market leader in lifestyle and sports. They want to bring that over. Um, and Glue will be able to build games based on EA's IP using Glue's marketing expertise to grow. So from his quotes, if he's correct, um, I think this will be a good match. Um, overall, this also doubles the bookings for EA's mobile division, roughly. So you're looking at about 15 Glue games at $544 million, uh, compared to EA Mobile's current $779. Miska? Um, I'm going to go through yeah. some stats. So, so I'm going to go through some objective looks before we, we get the uh, the JK's hot on the street take and, and Eric's uh, opinionated take. So when you look at 2020 for Glue, it was a good year. They grew by 35%. Uh, the five games, Adam, that you mentioned, Design Home, MLB, Covet Fashion, Kim K, as well as Sources Arena, they all make 94% of all the revenues of Glue. And when we look at these top top five games top six games we're talking about design home growing 18 percent, and that game is make as you said adam makes 37 percent of all the revenue mlb i don't know how they do it but every year they launch a new mlb game just a new new skew and again this year they made over 100 million with with the latest 100 million in net revenue with the latest mlb while pretty much all of ea franchises sports franchises declined so that was Fantastic. I don't know if it's because of baseball was somehow COVID proof, uh, but I know that NBA declined. Uh, I know that Madden declined, but somehow MLB did really great. Uh, COVID fashion, really, really old title. Like this is before Design Home. They were up by 28%. Kim K, I don't even remember how old Kim K is, but we have a deconstruction by uh, on, on, on the blog by Joe Traverso. I don't remember when he wrote this, but I remember being really young when he wrote this. That game is up by 116%. And and then Sources Arena, they're doing exactly as well as we've predicted. So that's about 30 million in net revenue a year. So that was no surprising. So what I want to just mention by this is we can clearly see that they are able to grow really, really old games or their forever franchises, if you will. Now, when it comes to new games, that's a little bit of a different picture. So we got WWE, the tanked. Uh, and there's a really crazy competition around WWE. There's all kinds of games. Even the card game by Take-Two is doing really well, actually. They got Deer Hunter, which used to be their kind of forever franchise. I think that one is kind of tanked. I know that they talked about how much revenue that game can make. I, th- I think Nick Earl mentioned it in some kind of a, um, investor release. I don't, I don't want to misquote, but I think they were talking about something like 70%, uh, 70 million in revenue for, for Deer Hunter, the, uh, the, the next version. But anyways, uh, that game is not looking to, to do that great because we have 10 Square Games, uh, which is the publisher behind Fishing Clash. They've released Hunting Clash and it's, it's looking pretty well. And Fishing Clash is, is just pretty much the same size of game as FIFA, to be honest. Um, there's no new games from, from Crowdstar, not since Design Home, which was, pu- which was published before uh, Glue bought Crowdstar. And we see that the whole customization genre is actually under tremendous attack. We got App Lovin' and everybody just making all kind of match three versions of, of customization. We got Finnish Reworks making exactly the same game and so forth. So uh, not exactly the same game, but exactly for the same audience. The question is, will they do more RPGs? I think, sure. Uh, the uh, Sorcerer's Arena is not, a, is not a bad take and it really shows they can work with an IP. The team behind, I don't know if that's the, exactly the same team behind Sorcerer's, Sorcerer's Arena that made Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, but those are the uh, the capital games, guys. Okay, um, f- hold on, hold on, hold what? on, hold on. Come they, on. There's no effing way they do another RPG. That What a train wreck that game has been, but moving on. 
it's it's done exactly what it could do. Like it's it's exactly what well, we think as- it could have done, but not what they thought it could done. And well, the amount of money they spent, they spent like four or five years developing that mother trucker, and it it barely eked out thirty million, right? Eric, it, it's done exactly as well as Looney Tunes by Scopely. It's it's done exactly the same as as any Disney no. RPG. So no, 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 no. Right, Anyways, move let's move on to the next one. Um, and then sports games. I know that MLB is doing great. Um, I think they did a football game back in the days. Uh, it's it's interesting to see if they will add more sort of a tap sports title to it, maybe hockey or something like that. And then cooking games that used to be a glue's forte. They bought the uh, the studio that makes those diner dashes. It's it's an okay genre. It's not a it's not groundbreaking, but it kind of fits that big fish where Jeff Carp is is coming from to to uh, to to EA. They've done a, they've had a lot of success with cooking games, and and it could be a very profitable sort of a smaller genre. So my kind of a verdict is that. In order to be a great publisher, you have to know live ops. You have to know how to grow a game. You have to have the resources to grow games. You have to have a genre mastery in the genres that you are focusing on. And you also have a have to have a diversified portfolio so that you're safe when the market is changing and the audience is moving. Based on these four things, Glue is actually a very good publisher. They can grow, they can launch, they can operate. Come on. They have they have the genre mastery in the in the sports. They have it in customization, and they have a very diversified portfolio of forever franchises, if you will. They know how to work with an IP. They know how to run multiple studios, and they know how to ship games. So, you know, it's a it's a good publisher, and, and it's good that EA bought them. But as a fun fact, I kind of went back to our podcast about Glue way, way back, like a couple of years ago. So what he's talking about. <laughs> when we were running the uh, the verdict on, on, um, on Glue. And back then, I think it was uh, Nick Earl and Akaman, they were talking about their new strategy, which is like forming these cells in San Francisco that uh, they didn't name it cells, but basically they were talking about supercell strategy. And we kind of reviewed it and said that that wouldn't work. Well, it didn't work, but it doesn't matter. They, uh, they, they still won the game. So congrats to Glue. I think they did a lot of right things and that's the uh that's the result so now you guys you can go and dunk but i think it's a it's a good company mishka you got to start paying attention dude i mean i don't know where <laughs> you've been for the last year like we've been talking about this ad nauseum dude and you're like talking nonsense but go ahead jk i'll get mine mine in in a moment yeah i think well i you know i do think that well first congrats to those guys i think for anyone who's been following the podcast, we've kind of dropped hints that this is coming. Uh, folks on the Game Makers newsletter know <laughs> what's in the Slack, knew what, what, what's going on. But I think, Eric, if we're getting, we might want to do, I, I don't know if you're still up for it, but if we want to do a deep dive on that uh, as a separate podcast, we can talk about how this was more predictable and kind of what the p- potential implications are. But yeah, sure. go, go ahead, Eric. I'll hand it to you. <laughs> you know, I, I, honestly, I think everyone who listens to me is going to be very, very disappointed in my take on this because at the end of the day, I think this was an, actually a really good deal for both EA and Glue, right? I hate to say it. Now, you have to ignore valuation completely because if you go down that route, you will go insane, right? But hashtag ignore valuation is my kind of new mantra right now. But... This deal makes sense, right? Because why is it good for EA? Because it almost doubles the revenue in mobile in one shot. Jeff Karp shows that he has muster with this bold acquisition of a bunch of franchises. It adds baseball to soccer and football. 
and a couple forever franchises, including Design Home, which are maybe in decline, but nonetheless, you know, it just adds some chutzpah to the overall business for EA. And then it makes Andrew, who's freaking ignored mobile for like 20 years, finally feel like they're actually doing something in mobile, right? So good for EA in, in, in that sense. Um, now, it's obviously good for Glue because Glue is like staring down the barrel of a freaking gun, right? They have nothing in the pipeline that matters. They have a declining franchise and design home. They had IDFA, which they are totally not prepared for because Nick's comments like it could go up, it could go down, it could stay the same. You know, we don't know what's going to happen with IDFA. <laughs> that kind of sums up his pot potential position. Um, and then... At the end of the day, when your future is filled with risk, what you do is you try to sell, right? So the reason I've been saying on and on and on is things like Zynga and EA and Take-Two and Activision are, are never going to be for sale is because the future looks bright without getting sold. They can, they can drive more shareholder value by staying independent than they could if they got sold for a 20% premium today, right? That's basically the calculation that boards make all the time, right? And I'm... And Glue was not in this situation. They could not increase shareholder value from where they are. They were fully valued at this at this rate. They get some premium and everyone's freaking happy, right? And then the other thing you have to keep in mind with all this stuff is because this transaction was evidently contemplated late last year. Zynga was involved, most likely. Other publishers were involved. All these guys know each other, right? These guys are all like fraternity brothers from EA that grew up together. Nick, Frank Jabot, Jeff Karp. To somewhat Andrew, but he was kind of in Europe, so no one cared. But like fundamentally, like all these guys know each other really well. So it's like these deals are happening because of these relationships, right? So I think what happens if you would completely ignore valuation, because then again, my head will explode. Um, I think this deal makes sense, right? It's, it's, it, it, I have to say, it's not very good use of capital for EA. Like they've had four billion dollars on the <laughs> On the balance sheet for a long time and shoveling out 2.1 billion dollars okay sorry i'm supposed to hashtag ignore valuation but shoveling out two billion dollars for this cash seems insane but and investors are not going to feel are feeling that a little bit but from strategic perspective if they want to get involved in the fastest growing segment of the of the of interactive finally i can i can get behind this to some degree yeah, I do think what one of the things we've seen from EA is they don't have good ideas. So like, what else are they going to do with their capital, right? Right. So. And, and we're going to talk this about in a, in a bit with Embracer uh, on the next thing. But like, yeah, exactly. It's like, what else can they do? And what and the irony behind this whole thing, not the irony, but what, what's going to happen, though, is they're going to have an amazing year in mobile this year. Right. And and Jeff Karp is going to be doing his job of growing this business. And it's going to be buried within these acquisitions that, you know, that that aren't accretive necessarily, particularly early stages. Um, and it won't matter like how they perform going forward. It's just something at point in time type thing. So, anyway, we'll see. Uh, my my clients are not so enthused with this idea of acquiring this thing, but um, I think again, strategically, it makes sense. All right. Any other comments on that? All right, another story. Embracer Group, my favorite, acquires Borderlands maker uh, Gearbox Enter Enter <clears throat> Entertainment for one point three billion. Um, so, I guess what, 
where should we start? So they're basically 550 developers at Gearbox. Um, and they're also buying, oh, sorry, they also announced that they're buying Easy Brain, which I don't know anything about, so I'm not going to even comment on that one. Um, but under the deal with this, this is what this is very, very important to understand that, that $1.3 billion is, is, is based on an earnout, right? So basically, the, the amount of consideration they're doing is around $360 million initially for the company. And then they get an earnout of almost a billion dollars over the next six years. So so that's a completely different structure than just acquiring it outright for like $2 billion, like like glue. Um, so about your Gearbox, Gearbox has been around for like 30 years, right? They have uh, Borderlands, Brothers in Arms, Homeworld, and Duke Nukem. Those are the big IPs, Borderlands being obviously the biggest. And the thing is that you have to understand 2K owns the distribution rights to Borderlands. So anything in the Borderlands franchise ha is still owned by EA going forward as far as I understand it. Um, and then uh, any other products that are in development um, related to the Borderlands franchises are 2Ks. And so about Embracer. Embracer, obviously, we've talked about Embracer before, but they're like a parent company that owns a ton of games businesses. They started off with um, THQ Nordic. Uh, they have like franchises like Saints Row, Goat Simulator, Dead Island, et cetera, MXA TV. Um, and basically, they bought this company and it has about $123 million in sales, right, for the last nine months, which I think includes Borderlands, but I'm not 100% sure. But nonetheless, uh, because of their deal with, 2k they don't really retain much as much revenue as you would think for a borderlands game which did about 10 million units um so where to start here uh first of all these venture beat guys are journalists like they actually covered this thing relatively completely they kind of had all angles covered so i have to appreciate that um a lot except for the misleading headline about 1.3 billion it was not 1.3 billion like I think the Herculean task of what they have to do in order to earn that 1.3 billion is pretty onerous. But nonetheless, um, let's try to get more articles from VentureBeat and less about Tweak Town, Mr. Joseph Kim. Um, so anyway, I know I say this a lot, but Randy Pitchford, the head of Gearbox, is a fucking lunatic. And I'm using the F word appropriately in that point. He is a lunatic. He is kind of a bit of like evil genius type person, right? As far as I understand it, he is known as one of the biggest overpromisers in the business, right? Aliens, Borderlands, his general operation strategy is this, is to create the most amazing freaking vertical slice you've ever seen in your life. Five to 10 minutes of gameplay that becomes the centerpiece of all things in terms of expectations for these games. And then the, after that, the title is perpetually delayed. And then it comes out and it looks so far below the, the vertical slice that everyone's super disappointed and rips them the new one, right? This happens this happened time and time again, right? With the three major franchises, Aliens, uh, Brothers in Arms, and I would say Battleborn, as well as Borderlands to some degree. Um, so anyway, by the time the dust settles... And three years later, when he comes out with another game, everyone seems to have forgotten that this is what he does, right? And he does it over and over again. So they, they are not a prolific developer. They have 550 people, but they make about a game every two years or something. Um, and basically, the, over the last 10 years, the only thing really significant that they've delivered is Borderlands. Battleborn was an absolute bomb. Aliens was the biggest profound disappointment, I think, in a long, long time. Expectations were so high based on the visible fidelity and the expectations of gameplay even, like the story-based gameplay just was not there. And frankly, Borderlands 3 
disappointed in, in a lot of ways too because it was such or sorry the last borderlands yeah borderlands 3 right anyway the, it was basically the same as borderlands 2 and it just didn't feel much different they didn't add all these things it's like and i think we talked about this in the podcast it was like division and and destiny never happened because nothing had changed with the borderlands formula so so anyway, the deal. So I think the deal is, is a really testimony to the risks associated with dealings with someone like um, Randy at at at, at, this, at the company, right? The earnouts are, are relatively common, but a billion dollars of earnouts over six years—I've never heard that before. That's insane, right? And and I guess the issue here, though, is like, how in the hell are they going to drive that much value from this asset over a six-year period without like owning the the major comp, major major game that they have which is Borderlands which is going to be owned by Take 2. So where's their incentives? Their incentives are to build new IPs that Embracer is publishing because they would make more money from that in theory, right? So this is going to be a real challenge for them um exactly what they're going to be working on going forward. So I you know, I guess the assumption is the skew plan is strong enough to generate that much money that giving an earn out of a billion dollars, but they've never, but as far as I can tell, there's no way that, that, that the company's ever done that in the past. So your expe expectations are pretty high for what they're working on. Um, so yeah, this deal will make sense if they can execute, but since his history, history is delay, 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 over promise, under liver, over promise, under liver. I, I think this is a very, very risky, risky, risky deal for Embracer. Um, so I guess what I would say for Embracer, I still get more and more concerned with these guys every day, but I, evidently we're going to be talking to them. I don't know if they're going to want to talk to me, frankly, but this is like, a, again, it's a collection of questionable assets that may or may not deliver going forward. And dealing with people like Randy is freaking impossible. I've heard horror stories from Ubisoft, from Take-Two, from everybody that's worked with Randy. It's like really, really hard to deal with them. So the notion that they can get like a skew plan out of this guy in the next six years to generate that much money just seems impossible to me, but maybe I'm not thinking straight on this one. Um, and then the also is what if he misses these, these, these uh, milestones, right? What if he misses like the milestone for the first game and then part of that billion dollars is off the table and then he misses the next one and then the next one. And then it's like, where are the, wh what's the opportunity there? Nothing. Right. So he's like, ah, I'm out. I'm done. Right. I can't make any more money with this earnout. Why am I going to stick around? Right. I'm over. So it's, anyway, it could go off the rails really, really fast. So we will see. Um, but again, I guess I, the last thing I'm going to say about this is that, uh, you know, I think everyone needs to kind of ask themselves like these assets, like Codemasters have been around since 1986. Glue has been around since 2005. Gearboxes have been around since 1999. So why are these assets haven't been acquired until now, right? Have things materially changed in their businesses to justify these valuations or the, the acquisition just in general? So I think there's just, there, basically this is, the whole industry is in this in this spot where deals make sense no matter what the valuation is. So that's why hashtag ignore valuations is my, my new mantra and just think on the strategy side uh, for all these companies. All right, JK, what do you think? So I actually really like this deal a lot. And I, I would probably take the flip side of the view in terms of the deal structure in that that actually will then better align the acquisition in terms of, sure, if, you know, if Gearbox performs, then, then they get that billion dollar earnout. But if they don't, then it becomes a good synergistic, potentially synergistic deal with the rest of Embracer Group. So, 
you know, we do have a talk scheduled with these guys. So we'll be able to hear their firsthand account in terms of their strategy and how they are thinking about the business. And I will also publish, I, I realized that I didn't publish this uh, podcast that we had recorded with Sean Haran from Gearbox. It's about the future of PC games, but Sean also talks about Gearbox's business in that, in that panel discussion. And in terms of Embracer Studios overall, I don't know a lot of the studios part of that group, but I do know uh, some of the folks at Thinking Ape. And I do have to say that some of the folks at ATA are some of the deepest thinkers in the industry. And honestly, like, just honestly speaking, any most of the studios, any of the most sophisticated studios that I meet with, I rarely hear anything that I haven't already heard before, anything new. But I will say some of the ATA guys are really, really deep thinkers and uh, very, very smart guys. And I, so I do think it'll be great to hear from them and how they are kind of aligning you know, incentives in the future in terms of deal structure and things like that. And, and I do think that if you think about strategically where the world is headed and you know, the world is increasingly going cross-platform. So in my view, Gearbox, you know, as a platform for HD is super valuable. And so if See, there's okay, potential, okay. yeah. All right. Sorry. I want to agree with you on one thing. And I think I don't, I didn't mention it, but I, yeah. they are a mutual pass, right? Like I think this deal structure is really smart in the sense yes. that they are working on, they, they are, they are 100% aligned in terms yes. of what needs to happen, right? Right. So, so I, I agree with you on yeah. that. The fundamental problem with these assets, Codemasters, Board, uh, uh, Gearbox, and others that, that have been acquired recently is that they don't have the capability of executing against their mutual, you know, benefited path, right? To some degree. And on top of that, software as a service and building out these tools and things that are all like the rave or whatever, these assets have never done that. Like Borderlands, Missed, missed the mark completely in terms of this. They have a download strategy, a content strategy, which is like super old school, right? But they don't really have as much live services going on as other games. Now, I think they've improved it a little bit, but mm -hmm. my fundamental problem with this is, is that these companies are not the where the, the market's going. These are where the markets have been. And so they're so everyone's applying these valuations based upon the ex expectation is that, that they can deliver where the market is going. Right. But I, I think you, you could see a path in terms of because if you look at the overall Embracer group, like some of the folks that they have, whether it's, you know, can go with DECA, the ATA guys, these are guys who really deeply understand live ops very, very well. All right. Final two articles from Deconstructor of Fun. We got a prediction on shooters and we got the predictions for marketing. So the shooter prediction was written by myself, Adam, Alex McMillan and Ionat Degaro. Uh, so shooters is the fifth largest genre of mobile with 2.1 billion in net revenues during 2020. And it's so interesting because both the installs as well as downloads are going up. I know in the beginning, we talked actually about idle games and the idle game acquisition. I remember which one leaf group or something like that. I actually checked idle game. I'm jumping to another topic, but I checked idle games. Idle games had zero growth in downloads. So you know, kind of comparison. Anyways, during 2020, the revenues boomed up by 38% year over years, while the installs clocked at 2.7 billion, growing 31% compared to 2019. And this 38% of revenue growth happened despite the massive hole created by Fortnite and not calculating PUBG China, as well as not calculating the revenues from Japan, Knives Out and so forth. So calculating out all the, uh, the Asian games, still massive growth. And the growth also kind of created some entry barriers. So we know that the entry barriers are that the, it, 
these this genre has some of the heaviest live content operations in the industry. An insane amount of cosmetic content, tons of new game modes. PUBG, PUBG's Battle um, Metro Royale is a good example of that. Uh, they and through the cos cosmetic content as well as the new game modes, they drive retention and that drives also monetization. And the problem is that that requires an army of developers. So when we were writing this, we were kind of thinking about like how to find the blue spot in the red ocean of shooters. So we know that there's a strong demand because on average shooters get 20 million installs. We understand that there's a big underpricing strategy going on that has created these entry barriers because the overall revenue is up by 38%. Nevertheless, top four shooters, which is Call of Duty, uh, PUBG, Arena Free Fire, and Fortnite, uh, they their slice of the revenue grew from 75% of all revenue to actually 90% of this growing pie. And and as the revenue is concentrated, the installs are up. So you can't compete with the existing, but it's clear that that the more installs, because there's more installs and the share of installs of the top four is smaller, it means that there's more demand. But at the same time, as these new games come out, they're trying to compete with the same monetization model. So that led us to thinking about what would be the blue spot that uses a different monetization model. So a part of sniper games, all shooter genres on mobile pit players in direct competition. And while they incentivize players to collaborate, only few of them offer actually character classes and ways of players to specialize. So most importantly, the lack of any form of power progression puts all emphasis on skills and thus can, can become off-putting for more mature audience that can't keep up with the young guns. You know, we've talked about um, playing playing Apex Legends and other games, how difficult it is to get in. So the art conclusion, this is a long 26 pages. You can go and read it. Our conclusion was basically that you need to think more like Tarkov or Warframe to compete in this genre. And that allows you to pick up the blue spots in this very red ocean of shooters. So any comments, JK? No, no comments. I, I've heard a lot of great feedback about the shooter predictions. I, I, I need to go and go and read them. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you're if you're really interested in shooters. So, but if you are, this might be an article that you that, that you want to dive in. It, it kind of so it was hard to summarize it because it took us a while writing this. Uh, naturally, we were all very interested in the whole genre, and Adam is a long writer, so it took us a month to to write it. To write it but um it was it was interesting uh, mental exercise of what makes sense in the shooters yeah the so, feedback's been excellent though yeah no yeah, a lot great of people piece. talking about it i got nothing on this one all right last one so last one is the prediction on on marketing and this is the last prediction that i'm going to talk about this year i'm so happy to be done with them anyways so summary so this is from eric suford so summary of idfa deprecation leads to a few things one is as in jk's last podcast cpms are down dramatically Number two, decline of CPIs due to decline of CPM benefits some, but hurts those who need targeting. And this means basically hurting companies that that's portfolio is very high on DAU and very hard, high on ad monetization, as well as companies that have a low DAU games with a very high monetization. Retargeting will become more difficult. Uh, there's no workaround such as finger, fingerprinting or emails that makes any sense. This also doesn't mean that free-to-play games is at risk, but profile-centric acquirers are at risk. And finally, Google will follow suit and revoke access to the Android advertising identifier sometime in the future. I don't know quite when, but this is the prediction. 
So Eric kind of underlined three key strategies for, for gaming companies and not, not strategies, but three key trends that to keep in mind. So number one prediction is that IPs are back. And of course, this leads to this because it's harder to target. But if you know an IP, you know a certain audience and it makes it easier to target that. The number two reason for this is that entertainment companies are desperate right now. They haven't been able to push their entertainment content for a while because of all the lockdowns. Uh, there's no movie theaters and so forth. Um, the, it's, they really want to offer all their IPs. And number three is entertainment companies look for added engagement. So we see a lot of streaming platforms doing extremely well. And I, I know I talked about Mandalorian in one of these podcasts. You guys went crazy when I suggested a, a Mandalorian or a Star Wars fighting game. But what I mean by that is that these, these entertainment companies, they're, they're looking for other avenues to engage with players. And because games have been such on such an insane growth during the lockdowns, it makes sense for them now to, to look at games in a different matter. Number second prediction was that product marketing managers are back in business. So you can't rely on creative performance to understand audiences anymore. You have to actually analyze your own audience and not leave it to Facebook or Google. And you also have to pursue broader audiences. So marketing managers kind of there between advertising and product and, uh, and the role of these, these people will become more and more important uh, in order to, to analyze and in order to make the right decisions as you're growing your games. And number three is mixed media channels. So because of the broader audience that the games will be targeting, you'll be also using much broader targeting, a much broader set of, of channels. And this will lead to greater demand for measuring incrementality because there are so many channels. And, and um, yeah, so those are those are three key predictions from, from Eric. And uh, I read through this a couple of times and I think it makes all the sense. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. Um, this all of this unfolding in 2021 yes big questions are be answered in theory so yeah. we'll see what happens all right cool yeah. cool cool i think We're that's done. it all right guys Using a new, new platform squadcast was uh, a disaster but <laughs> the, the first time is always the hardest we lost video a couple of times we lost adam we lost recording we had to restart but it was a good episode a lot of good news covered all right. Catch yeah, y'all later, uh, everybody. All right. Bye. Bye.